Well, on October the 31st, 1517, Martin Luther, an Augustinian monk, who'd been wrestling with his conscience, scripture, his church, and its traditions, nailed his 95 theses for debate on the church door at Wittenberg. And what had been boiling up, had been simmering for quite a while, erupted. Now, unless you're a history buff, you might be wondering why an event which happened 500 years ago in Germany has any relevant, practical, and useful benefit for us today. And you might indeed be puzzled as you look at the new program card, why we're giving it three sermons, six house group studies, and one film night in the autumn program. So here's the rationale for looking at uh, the origins of the Protestant Reformation. You see, there are many things that we take for granted. For example, why was it until really the early 1960s that 13 of the 15 wealthiest countries in the world were all Protestant? Why when you look around the country, there are so many good schools which are called King Edward's the Sixth Schools. He was only king for six years. He was a boy king. He was the successor of Henry VIII. He was a Protestant. Why did the likes of Sir Walter Raleigh, Sir John Hawkins, Sir Francis Drake set about exploring the world and its treasures from these shores? Why was the world of science opened up by the likes of Sir Francis Bacon, considered among the fathers of empiricism and is credited with establishing the inductive method of experimental science via what is called the scientific method today? Or Johannes Kepler, a prominent astronomer and Lutheran who discovered the laws of planetary motion and who coined the phrase and the idea that in research and discovery he was simply, quote, thinking God's thoughts after him. And why was there a move from lawmaking and government from the aristocracy towards democracy and the gradual extension of suffrage so more and more citizens had the right to vote? Well, much of the answer to these questions lies in a reinvigorated biblical worldview that was discovered afresh at the Reformation. They discovered that they are placed here on earth for a purpose, to multiply and to manage, Genesis 1.28 fill the earth and subdue it. We are to be God's stewards or managers of this world. We're to use our God-given talents to the full. And we are here to spread the gospel. The first is a creation ordinance, and the second is a salvation ordinance. And such an outlook as that affected every area of life, enterprise rather than apathy or fatalism, exploration of God's world geographically and in science, 
and applying the discoveries of science and the new raw materials from the world combined to form industry and prosperity, education, politics, the arts, freedom. We'll expand on them all next week. But let's just take one briefly now as an illustration. Politics. Think about it. If you come to believe that all human beings are equal in status before God, can you see how that led to congregationalism as a form of church government? Church communities where all Christian members of those communities had an equal vote in running their church. And then, can you see how if that was their experience in their churches, they wanted it in their countries. And that's why aristocrats gave way to democrats. Well, we need a bit of context. It is, after all, 500 years ago. And we might debate as to how far back in history we ought to go to kind of set the Reformation. But let's go back 300 years before the Reformation when Thomas Aquinas was one of the foremost Roman Catholic theologians. Aquinas believed in the fall, that point in time where human beings rebelled against God and were expelled from his presence in the Garden of Eden. Now, Augustine in the 5th century had correctly taught that human beings fell totally. That is, that all their faculties and ours who succeed them have been adversely affected. Our bodies, our minds, our hearts and our wills. We are fallen intellectually, emotionally, volitionally and physically. The whole of us has been marred. But Aquinas thought that we were only affected volitionally, not intellectually, by the fall. He thought that the mind was unaffected whilst our desires were adversely affected. And that, of course, meant in practice that the human mind was free to discover of its own accord more and more more about God and his ways. But scripture, you might recall, says that we only know two things of significance about God without him having to specially reveal them to us. His existence as creator, deduced from his creation, and his moral character, deduced from our consciences, our moral barometers. Now this rather elevated view of an uncontaminated mind led to a period of history called the Renaissance, where individual human reason, or collectively, or collective reason is really just the traditions of the church, trumped scripture as the prime source for discovering the meaning to life. If you look at works of art by some of the greats of that time, like Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci, they reveal a great confidence in man to succeed in his quest to work out the meaning of life. But later, Leonardo, who was one of the most talented people who have ever lived, despaired of such an approach. He could do most, almost everything, and he could do it with excellence. He was a chemist, a musician, an architect, an 
anatomist, a botanist, a mechanical engineer, an artist. But he realized that man beginning with himself would never be able to discover the meaning to life. What it was that gave understanding to existence. And he saw ahead to where we are today. Everything, including man, is the machine. And he said with a despondent disposition to the king of France towards the end of his life, as a man thinketh, so he is. Now Leonardo overlapped with Luther, so the Renaissance was coming to an end just as the Reformation was about to be launched on the Western world. And along with these mega shifts of Western thought were the agonizing of this Augustinian monk with an incredibly sensitive conscience. Luther battled with his desires and temptations. He would sometimes go to confession for six hours. He completely exhausted his confessors. He carried out the acts of penance that they told him to do, but he still had no assurance of acceptance by God, no peace of mind. He agonized. He feared for his fate on the day of judgment. How could he acquire the righteousness of God that he read about and longed for. Now at that particular time in the Roman Catholic Church, God was conceived of a dis as a distant judge who struck terror into his followers. He was seen as a judge who weighs each of us in the scales of justice. Will our meritorious acts outweigh our sinful ones, or will we be found wanting? At that time, the fertile and creative minds of the Roman Catholic Church dreamt up purgatory and indulgences. The saints were those who'd got to heaven with straight away with a surplus of merit to spare. As the saints of the church, the church could dispense their spare merit to those mere mortals who required a top-up in their merit account. But of course, it came at a price. For a price, the church could issue you a certificate of indulgence, which transferred merit from the surplus of the Catholic saints in heaven to you. And you would get time off in purgatory, or time off for your already deceased loved ones. Now, of course, you won't find any mention of purgatory in the Bible. But you can see how they probably did dream it up. Because upon reflection, we observe that when we die and leave this life, we are not perfect. And yet heaven is full of perfect people. So how do you bridge the gap? Their solution was that there was a place, purgatory, where you would be prepared so that you would be ready to take up your place in heaven. Now, like most improvement programs, it was hard graft, somewhat rather punishing. But with some cash and the help of Mother Church, the merits of the saints could be transferred to you to alleviate your time there, and in fact to speed up your time in purgatory. Johann Tetzel travelled around the German cities, 
with this little ditty. When the coin in the coffers rings, the soul in purgatory springs. In other words, so pay up and your loved ones can speed their way through and arrive in heaven in the shortest possible time. Yes, it was a racket. A very nice little earner for the Pope who was able to build St. Peter's Basilica in Rome with the proceeds. Now Luther was shocked when he saw what went on in Rome. He'd relied upon the Latin Vulgate translation of the Bible. But just at that time, Erasmus published the Greek text of the New Testament alongside the Latin Vulgate for comparison. And Luther compared the two texts. For example, Matthew 4:17. He read this. From that time, Jesus began to preach. Now the Latin has, do penance, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. But in the Greek, which is of course the earlier text, and the language of the original writers of the New Testament, it has a word, not do penance, but change your mind, think differently, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Jesus was talking about an internal transformation rather than an external act. Now Luther by this time had seen through all this nonsense and he nailed up his 95 theses which were simply points for debate. A debate that was really about authority. Was God's word scripture the supreme authority or the man-made traditions of the church. Now during this time, Luther's own understanding of Christianity was shifting. He believed the indulgences cheapened repentance. But the more he thought about it, he realised how superficially he'd been treating sin himself. He'd been taught that God would not deny grace to those who do their best. So he'd viewed sin as an outward behavioural problem a problem that could be corrected simply by doing better. He began to increasingly realise that the problem went far deeper. Sin was in us, shaping all our desires. And even those who do their best were still thinking that they could fix it. They were still attempting a self-righteousness, a DIY salvation. And he didn't find this system worked at all. It never gave peace to his conscience, nor did it ever give him assurance. It was not a better performance that was needed, he concluded, but a change of heart. Now while his sense of sin deepened, his understanding of grace took a while to catch up. For years, Luther could only see God as all judge and no love. His righteousness all about punishing sinners. His gospel just the promise of judgment. And he became angry with this God. And he wrote, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. And in his monk's cell, he had time and he wrestled with the scriptures. 
he particularly wanted to know what Paul meant in Romans 1, 16 and 17 by the righteousness of God. It's page 1128 if you wanted to turn to it. Well, let me read it as you do. Verse 16 of chapter 1. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. This is how Luther expresses his discovery. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous person lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the, the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which our merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. And here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. You see, with this, Luther had discovered an entirely different God and the entirely different way that he relates to us. The righteousness of God, the glory of God, the wisdom of God, these are not ways in which God is against us. These are things... God has and that he shares with us. Here Luther saw for the first time in his life the good news of a kind and generous God who gives sinners the gift of his own righteousness. The Christian life then could not be about the sinner's struggle to achieve his own human righteousness. It was about accepting God's own perfect divine righteousness. So here now was a God who does not want our goodness, but wants our trust. Forgiveness did not depend on how certain the sinner is that he's been truly contrite enough. Forgiveness comes simply by receiving the promise of God. So the sinner's hope is found not in himself, but outside of himself, in God's word of promise. All the struggles, all the anxiety could be replaced with massive confidence and simple faith. Now when in 1520 Luther came to explain this discovery to the world in a little tract called The Freedom of the Christian, he used this rather beautiful illustration to explain it. The gospel, he explained, is like the story of the king representing Jesus, who married a prostitute representing a sinner. No works of hers 
could ever win her the right to be the king's bride. However, when the king made his marriage vow, the prostitute became, by status, queen. It's not that she made her behaviour queenly, so she made herself the queen. In fact, she didn't know how to behave like royalty. But he changed her status when he took her to be his. So she found herself to be still her poor old self at heart, while at the same time queen by status. Just like the sinner, on accepting Christ's promise in the gospel, is simultaneously sinner at heart and righteous by status. The Christian is at the same time righteous and a sinner and will always remain so in this life. For by God's grace, Christians have a righteousness credited to them that is not their own. It's the righteousness of Christ. As Luther put it, we have a righteousness that is both alien, by which he meant external and not our own, and passive, by which he meant unearned. What has happened is the joyful exchange in which all that the believer has, her sin, she gives to Christ. And all that he has, his righteousness, blessedness, life and glory, he gives to her. Luther writes, her sins cannot now destroy her, since they were laid upon Christ and swallowed up by him. And she has that righteousness in Christ, her husband, of which she may boast as of her own, and which she can confidently display alongside her sins in the face of death and hell and say, if I have sinned, yet my Christ, in whom I believe, has not sinned. And all his is mine, and all mine is his. As the bride in the Song of Solomon says, my beloved is mine, and I am his. Well, the debate soon turned to a trial, and there were demands that Luther be burnt at the stake as a heretic. He was put on trial, but he escaped before the verdict was delivered and was secretly secreted in the castle at Wittenberg by that territory's ruler, Frederick the Wise, who protected him. And there he was able to study the scriptures. He wrote pamphlets. He translated the New Testament into a very down-to-earth German. So when it was published in September 1522, he realised his dream that the people, quote, might seize and taste the clear, pure word of God itself and hold to it. You cannot marvel, well, you cannot but marvel at the providence of God in Luther's day, in those few years at the beginning of the 16th century. The Renaissance, man's attempt to work it all out by himself, was coming to an end with a high degree of despair. The church had become so corrupt, its folly was there for all to see. Erasmus had unearthed and made available 
Greek manuscripts of the New Testament so accurate translations could be made into German and other national languages and comparisons made to the 6th century Vulgate Latin translation which was erroneous in far too many parts. The recent invention of the printing press meant that Bible translations and Protestant literature could be cheaply and readily transmitted. The Holy Roman Empire that had ruled for nearly a thousand years was fragmenting, which meant that smaller states within it were in a stronger position to protect the reformers from Rome. Frederick the Wise was able to protect him from abduction and execution, leaving Luther free to think, translate and write. We see that God will not be frustrated by man as he seeks to get his message of salvation out to all his chosen. Well, next week we'll look at um, the Reformation's effect on the Western world in its totality and the week after about how it changed the church and perhaps Rob will tell us the origin of the term hocus pocus.